Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt and I'm your host. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker. And I created this show to really talk about what it looks like to humanize a workplace, to transform leaders, and create places where people can get excited to go to work every day. And speaking about excited, I'm extremely excited to speak with today's guest. Our guest today is Drew Dudley. And Drew is the founder and chief catalyst at Day One leadership. He has an amazing TEDx, um, TEDx talk that I encourage you to watch over 5 million views. And he's a best-selling author of This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. Welcome to the show, Drew. It is so nice to be here, Kristen. I'm absolutely thrilled. Um, so Drew, I, I have to say, I read the book. I loved it. You are a phenomenal storyteller and uh, you speak my language. There's so many things I want to dive into with you today. What's going to be hard is limiting myself because I'm just going to want to talk to you forever. Um, but I think that you did this so well in the book and I, I'd like to start here with you today in this conversation. Um, you were, you're very authentic. You were very vulnerable as you opened up the book and talking about the fact that you've had day ones in many areas of your life, whether that be an entrepreneur, whether that be mental health, whether that be um, dealing with alcohol. So I'd, I'd love to start there and hear a little bit about your story, Drew. Sure. I mean, if we want to focus on the day ones, the concept of day one leadership really came about when what I was uh, teaching at the University of Toronto or the program I was running at U of T, which was their leadership program, started the theory that I was talking about there started to meld with the insights I was getting from these brilliant leaders that I worked with or that I ran into. And a lot of those leaders don't look like what we've been taught leaders look like. If you, you've read the book, you know that it's everyone from cab drivers to seven-year-olds uh, to guides in the desert. And the first concept I really thought heard of day one was a decade ago when a guide I had in the desert told me that he approached every day at work as if it was his first day. But he told me it was his first day as we were like a hundred yards away from him driving me off a cliff. We were going dune bashing. So we were supposed to go off the cliff, but I wasn't aware that I had the new guy or so I thought. <laughs> and when I looked so terrified as we were ripping towards this, this cliff and he all of a sudden says, well, it's my first day, I must have looked less than enthused about that because he, he slammed the brakes and he said, you know, it's been my first day for 17 years because on your first day, you're more committed, you're happier, you try harder to get along with your coworkers and you ask every question that you have. There's no shame on your first day. The problem is once you start day two and beyond, a lot of that commitment and care and willingness to talk about what you don't know starts to fade away. And so he said, it's been my first day for 17 years, but I have 17 years of first days to take care of you, Mr. Dudley. And five years ago, I bought the company. So there's the first concept of I go to work every day as if it's my first day because there is an inherent commitment, humility, and forgiveness on day one. And that was sort of the first day one seed, but it was over the ensuing years when I came to grips with my bipolar disorder. Uh, I, I am bipolar. I hid it for many, many years because we still equate mental illness with mental weakness. But when I couldn't get many of my students to seek the help that they deserved because they were afraid talking about their mental illness would make them look weak would make them an embarrassment to their parents, particularly those who are first generation Canadians, there was a real fear of letting their parents down. And their idea was that mental illness would let their parents down, would make them an embarrassment. And, and mostly they thought they'd be unemployable. And so I started to realize that 
man, we cannot ask people to do stuff we won't do. Mm -hmm. And so I started sharing my personal story of mental illness with students to begin with. And I started to discover that, hey, we were raised, I think, to act as if, if you want to be impressive, you want to impact people, the goal is to find a way to make people say, oh my God, I didn't know that, or oh my God, I couldn't do that. And what I really discovered is that maybe the, the greatest impact we can have as, as individuals and, and therefore as leaders is to find a way to make people say, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Mm. Like there's where people are freed. Oh my God, I thought I was the only one. And I think all of us have parts of our stories that we can make other people say that. But it's odd, the stuff that we have inside us that would make other people the most free by making them say, I thought I was the only one afraid of that or hurt by that or hiding that is usually the stuff we are least likely to share because we're afraid it's gonna make people judge us. When in fact, what it does is it makes other people feel relieved that they can talk about it too. I had day one of going from 320 pounds to you know, 100 pounds lighter, day one of starting my own company, day one without alcohol. And the whole idea of all of those voyages is that each day there are certain non-negotiable behaviors that have to be a part of your life whether it's exercise and, and diet, or really the one that really shaped the whole process is when you stop drinking, you can't worry about how many days it's been since you last drank, and you can't worry about how many days remain that you can't drink in your life. All you worry about is going from getting out of bed to going to bed without having a drink. And every day in my life could be wildly different, but that has to stay consistent. And we started to treat leadership the same way all right, if you want weight loss, if you want mental health, physical health, business success, there are certain non-negotiable behaviors that just have to become a part of every day of your life. And leadership is the same way. So the idea was, all right, let's help people figure out the non-negotiable leadership behaviors that have to be a part of every day of their life. Because when you start a day one, there's that humility, commitment, forgiveness. I mean, right now I'm three weeks into, you know, being a son without a father. And that's a whole new set of day ones that you have to navigate through. Three years ago, it was, it was losing you know, the first person I ever actually loved. And so there's always these day ones of dealing with things in your life. And ultimately, it's on those days where you say, okay, if I'm going to move forward through this, I have to say there are certain things that no matter what changes on a day-to-day -day basis, these never do. And that's sort of where the whole day one concept came from, is that it's not about restarting every day, it's about recommitting every day to certain behaviors. And it kind of recognizes that, hey, you're not always in charge of what you have to do every day, but you're always in charge of who you are. Nobody gets to take that away. But if you don't flex that muscle, you forget that you have it. And I think that that changes you. So it's all about consistency. I mean, leadership isn't in the big things it's in the consistent things and we want to help people be more consistent instead of just saying it let, let's figure out how right let's actually give some some strategies to do that but it all it all came down to day one and it really started with a guy in the desert um telling me his his not just as much as leadership but his business philosophy because that's all he asked anyone who showed up to work for him he said come come to work every day like it's day one the customers love it they really really do you don't want to go to work with the same skill level but the same humility, forgiveness, and commitment, that's helpful. Yes. Yeah. So powerful. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think um, 
one of the things I noticed about you, Drew, is you are, are really good at observing and, and noticing when these, th- these things are happening and taking each moment as an opportunity to learn from and what's this here to teach me. And I, I, I agree completely in terms of it can feel counterintuitive, but when we actually share our story, when we're vulnerable in that way, people are able to connect with us on such a deeper level because they see the humanity, but it feels so counterintuitive, right? Until you do it. And, and I, I hear you doing it over and over and over again, right? So it's like building the muscle every time you've had those first days and you've shared it with others, um, give them permission to do it as well and share parts of them. But again, also the, uh, it can sometimes feel lonely, like you're the only person that feels that way and, and it's not the case. So um, th- th- thank you for sharing that because I, I think it's um, such a beautiful philosophy to ad- adopt when we think of leadership. Well, it's interesting because vulnerability is equated with weakness, right? And I don't think it is. It really is strength. It's, it's, uh, it shows a lack, not a lack of fear, but a willingness to face the fear that some people are going to come after you when you do it. People aren't vulnerable because we attack vulnerability, particularly people we don't like, right? And so because we do that, we assume people are going to do that to us. So one of the easiest ways to allow yourself to be more vulnerable is to stop going after people you don't like when they're vulnerable. Uh, but also, just for what it's worth, I think especially right now is that I always appreciate it when people say, Oh, I appreciate your vulnerability, but I also do want to acknowledge that, look, I'm a straight white guy born in Canada who runs his own business and has financial independence. There are fewer consequences for me being vulnerable and open than any other group of people in society. I'm not saying there are no consequences, but I suffer less for being open for, uh, being vulnerable for talking about the things that have hurt me than anybody else. It's way harder for a person of color. It's way harder for women. It's way harder for people uh, in the LGBT community to talk about these things because they are punished more for every single thing that I can basically get through relatively easily. So I always want to recognize that, that I super appreciate when people say that, but I also do want to recognize I'm an incredibly privileged guy because there is less threat to me to do it than anybody else, which isn't to say there's none, but I, I face way fewer consequences for anything in this world than people who don't look like me, than people who weren't born cis white male in a democratic country. Well, I wholeheartedly um, agree and I really appreciate you um, offering that, that perspective because uh, I know there's going to be audience members that are, are hearing this and they are from, um, from different demographics and different communities and different upbringings and lots of different things. And um, it's important to recognize that for each of us, we're in unique situations and, and not kind of wave a wand that it's the same for everybody, paint, the, paint with the brush. So um, I, I really appreciate that. That distinction and 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 with what's going on in the world right now right with uh with black lives matter um i think it's even more important to 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 recognize that with with what's going on um drew i i, I love something else that you had said which is there's been times where you've uh been doing keynotes you've done speaking engagements and you ask how many people in the room are leaders mm-hmm. and a lot of times only half of the people put up their hands, maybe sometimes even less than half. And um, we, we really um, both share this belief that we are all leaders, but a lot of times people aren't seeing themselves as leaders. So talk to me a little bit more about that concept that we're all leaders. Yeah, well, it, what's interesting is it's, it's not sometimes, it's always. Less than 1% of the time that I ask how many of you are comfortable calling yourself a leader, less than 1% of the time do half the people raise their hands. 
it, it just ba basically never happens. And it's interesting because I tell, you know, senior executives in the pre-event calls that we do that I ask that and they say, well, you might not want to with us. We're going to see a lot of hands go up and uh, they are wrong. And it's interesting to sort of glance sideways at them as they actually see that their organization is filled with individuals who hesitate to call themselves leaders in front of others. Like when I did it for a, few, a little while with those sort of uh, technological text ins, I'm like, how many of you are comfortable calling yourself leader? And they text in and it's, it's you know, 40, 50, 60%. But you ask them to raise their hands in front of other people, that's when it doesn't happen. And, and we did it both, right? I'd ask them to raise their hands first and then I'd ask them to text in and, and you just see the, the dichotomy between the two. And it's really because from a really young age, we're taught in a way that makes leadership separate from our identity. So in the education system from, from whence I came, did I just say from whence I came? Oh my gosh. I, I spent 15 years of my life in higher education as a student and then as somebody who, who worked with students. And ultimately what I came to realize is that when you want people to understand a concept, what you do is you give examples of the concept. And whatever example you're first given of a concept, not only does it shape how you think about it for the rest of your life, but it limits how you think about it for the rest of your life. And when it comes to leaders and leadership, first of all, those two words are very odd anyway, because the word leader can be traced back to around the 1300s. The first time you sort of see that word used, the word leadership as a concept doesn't show up until the 1800s. There's 500 years before the English language started writing about leaders. And when they started writing about leadership, they were the same thing. And ultimately, the examples we're given as kids are all giants, presidents and scientific groundbreakers and people who conquered empires, because presidents used to be leaders. And ultimately, what happens is it creates a, an image in our mind where leaders are someone other than us. And what we do is we lose sight of the fact that the true power available to everyone in this world exists in moments. And Chip and Dan Heath wrote a remarkable book I'd really recommend to anyone out there called The Power of Moments that breaks down what makes a defining moment. In my TED talk, I talk about lollipop moments. And basically, they talk about defining moments and they break down what makes one. And they're very similar concepts. But the idea is that moments of leadership, in my mind, involve moments of compassion and empathy and kindness and recognition, these individual interpersonal interactions that are available to everyone. The challenge is we don't call them moments of leadership and we don't call them powerful. In fact, if you really think about it, being kind, causing a smile, what we generally call it is the little things. It's the little things that you do. And there's a real problem with that because those are the most powerful impact we have on other people. And yet we've socialized ourselves into dismissing them as small. Bear in mind that moments of compassion and empathy and kindness and empowerment and growth those are the single most powerful things that we can do regularly that are completely within our power, regardless of our age or our background or our financial situation. And they're pretty much the only source of power on earth that doesn't have a systemic barrier between that power and most of the people on the planet. Like most sources of power on earth are not available to most people on earth. And that's been carefully created. Like people maintain that idea. So when we dismiss moments of leadership and interpersonal impact as little things, and we associate leadership with charisma and profile and money and power, what we basically do is we create a world where most of the leadership on the planet comes from people who don't call themselves leaders. And that, when I started to realize how few people that surrounded me, and we're talking dynamic young people who 
fight for social justice, who raise money for charity, who do great things for each other in this world. When you talk about volunteers in the community, the incredibly nice hot dog guy on our campus who knew your name, who knew when your midterms were, that made people smile when he talked to him, the bus driver who made you know some of the kids who were bullied feel comfortable. I, I hear that story from some of my students as, as part of our, our work. Those people would never call themselves leaders. And that bugs the crap out of me because let's face it, the way that you treat me on this podcast, the way that the person, when I first walked into a gym as a 300 pound guy and made me feel welcome in a place that I had always been afraid to walk into, those individuals play a hell of a lot bigger role in our lives than politicians and CEOs. Yes, what they do impacts us. And yes, I'm enraged on a daily basis by the orange pumpkin down below us. Uh, but Ultimately, in terms of actually impacting what goes on in my life, it is the people that surround us. And you are the people that surround us, right? You are the person that surrounds other people and the other people are the people that surround you. And their actions have a much bigger impact. So why on earth do we not call those actions leadership? Why don't we celebrate them as leadership? And why don't we consciously teach a process to help us engage in behaviors that are leadership? And, and that to me is where I really wanted to start talking about it. There, I'm not saying everyone can be a CEO. I'm not saying every, or wants to be. I'm not saying everyone should be a president or wants to be, but I am saying there's a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. And it's based on individual, daily, consistent, non-negotiable behaviors. And if you figure out what they are, and what I work on is actually helping people do that because they're tied to your core values. Mm. Once you identify them and once you commit to living them every day, what you are doing is you are demonstrating to yourself that you matter. You are giving yourself irrefutable evidence that you impact other people. And let's face it, we all hope to matter. We hope to lead. We hope to make a difference. But do we have a plan to matter, plan to lead, and plan to make a difference? And I think there's a difference there. And I think we can all create one. But if we broaden the definition of leadership, we start to recognize that not only is it accessible to more people, but I think in many ways, we have not only an opportunity, but an obligation to actually seize that. And I, I think that's really important. So my perspective on leadership is born in these defining moments. But right now, we create them accidentally. And what I'm saying is that all of us can be a lot more deliberate in when we create them. And what we talk about or what I talk about, we don't need to get into it today, is a, a behavioral psychology approach that makes it harder for you to ignore being the person you hope to be. Because leadership ultimately is recognizing a gap exists between the person you want to be and how you're actually behaving, recognizing that gap is your responsibility and having a plan to close it. That is the foundation of leadership. And all kinds of other fancy leadership management theories, many of which are valid, are built on top of that foundation though. And we skip over it because it's more important to, to fill out our to-do list than it is to commit to our to-be list on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. For a lot of us, it's been a long time since our to-be list drove our life as opposed to our to-do list. Mm. That was a bit of a rant, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, something that I enjoy ranting about. So you, you keep ranting about that. Um, I, I say all the time that we're not human doings, we're human beings, right? There's so much time with the doing and we're not taking a step back in the being. And that's, that's my mission here when I talk about um, humanizing work and transforming leaders is that um, transformation starts from the inside out, right? Which is exactly what you're talking to, getting clear on who you are, who you want to be, and closing the gap between where you are and where you want to be. And um, I'm also
also a firm believer in, in what you're talking about in terms of core values. And it's, it's amazing. I do so much work with clients around that too. Um, the number of people who haven't spent any time getting clear on what their core values are and how enlightening it is when they start to recognize those times where they felt out of alignment and in alignment because they realize, oh, I was honoring the values. I was not honoring the values or why something upset them because somebody else wasn't honoring a value that's really important to them. And so I'd like to dive in into this a little bit with you, Drew. Um, and I know, again, we're limited and there's lots of different things that, that happen to make I, this. I did warn you, my answers tend to run long. I'm going to try really <laughs> hard to shorten them. <laughs> um, and, and of course, anyone who's listening right now, this is just getting you to start to understand some tactics like anything. Um, Drew, I hope you would also agree with me that this isn't about instant gratifi- gratification and change doesn't happen overnight. Change is a process and it's something that we work on and with the day one happening every day. It is a commitment that you're continuously making. But what I'd like to ask you, um, what does that look like to start to, um, first of all, recognize, you know, what you want those commitments to be, and then to make sure you're checking in with yourself on a daily basis to make sure you are living and breathing those commitments. I'm going to take five seconds to figure out the shortest way to convey this. without telling stories. Okay, so here's, here's what, what happened. We did a social experiment at the university when one of my students observed that it's a lot easier to stand up for an ideal than it is to live up to one. And I thought that was so smart. And then I discovered he stole it. But uh, for anyone wondering, I used to tell my students, in leadership, you never steal an idea. You benchmark a best practice. But it got us thinking about, okay, how can we actually live up to our values? So the short answer is we identified a value we, we hoped to embody every day. And it was impact, a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they are better off for having interacted with you. And we needed that definition because we throw around a lot of words in our lives and, and businesses, right? They go on the, on the bulletin boards like respect and integrity and impact. But if someone put us on the spot and said, I'm sorry, English is not my first language. Could you explain in the simplest terms possible what the word respect means and please start your definition with the phrase a commitment to because i want to i want to focus on behaviors and the phrase a commitment to is usually followed by a behavior and so they came up with a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they're better off for having interacted with you and we committed for a week to try and answer that or to try to do that but what we found was at the end of the day we'd look back and try to pick out a moment where we'd done it which means you're using your value, which you want to define you, to evaluate behavior that's already happened. And leaders use their values to drive behavior and impact decision-making in the moment. If you only think of your values at the end of the day, they're not actually values because a value is only a value if it's used as criteria for decision-making. It's not a value in your life, it's just something that looks good on a bulletin board, unless whenever you make decisions, you use your values as the criteria you use to make decisions. And most of us don't. For most of us, the criteria we use to make decisions is this. Which of these options will avoid the most consequences right now? And that is not value-based decision-making. We needed another approach. And with the help of some psychology professors, God, I loved working at a university because there's an expert on everything. (laughs) We took a new approach. We harnessed the power of the unanswered question. And this is where I'm going to make the answer shorter than I usually do. Based on a couple of behavioral psychology tricks, 
what became a, we came aware of is that the human brain hates unanswered questions, can't stand them. If you are posed a question and you do not know the answer, your brain does work on it consciously for a while, but then you think you forget it and you give up on it. You don't. Your brain experiences psychic discomfort when presented with an unanswered question to the point where it will continue to work on it subconsciously until it comes up with an answer. And if it can't come up with one, it makes one up and then convinces you it's true. Mm. And that's a dangerous thing. We're watching that happen and the danger of that uh, all over the world, particularly in the United States right now. But what we, came, what we determined was, okay, why don't we use questions then? Instead of saying, let's go have impact, let's create a question that's carefully crafted so that you can't answer the question without having impact. And the specific one we started with is this, what did I do today to recognize someone else's leadership? You cannot answer that question without having impact. Mm-hmm. Because if you walk up to someone and say, Kristen, the way you do your job, the way you do this podcast, the way you make me feel, the way I've watched you empower others, motivates me, inspires me, you are a leader in my life. Yeah. Nobody walks away from that interaction not feeling better off. Yeah. And the question isn't a yes, no question. It's how did I? So you can't lie to yourself. There's a specificity, who, what, where, why, when, and how. It can be answered a million different ways every day. And it's as accessible to introverts as it is to extroverts. Because you can answer it by email, by a text, by a written card. And most leadership strategies are not nearly as accessible to introverts as they are to extroverts. That's how we started. And that question and that approach, which we called operationalizing leadership values, was a game changer. That's why I ended up quitting my job because it worked so well. The book is filled with some of the stories that were created by students committing to that question for a week. I, I love those stories that came out of that. I was so glad to get to share them. And ultimately what we've effectively created now is the leadership test. By the end of that year, we had added questions to the point where we had six and we approached it like this. Imagine if every night before you go to bed, you have to prove you deserve another day on this planet. Mm. Not at the end of a a quarter or semester or a five-year plan. Every night before you go to bed, you have to prove you deserve to get up the next day. And in order to prove it, you got to pass a test. You got to get three questions out of six. The thing is, you are given the questions in the morning. And if that was our reality, those questions would be non-negotiable. We wouldn't answer them when we had time. We wouldn't put them off. We wouldn't procrastinate. We wouldn't do it in between meetings or emails or picking the kids up. We would take care of them. They would be a fundamental necessity every day. And by doing that, we prioritized our to-be list above our to-do list because those questions were tied to who we wanted to be. And, and that we started with six, well, we added a value every month. So it started with impact and then growth and then courage and then empowerment, then class, then self-respect, which we should have started with because that's the one upon which everything else is built. And we had six questions that went with those. What did I do today to recognize someone else's leadership? What did I do today to make it more likely someone would learn something? What did I do today that might not work, but I tried anyway? Uh, What did I do today to move someone else closer to a goal? How did I elevate when I could have escalated today? And what did I do today to be good to myself? Those six questions comprised our leadership test. And no matter what happened every day, we had to get three out of six. And if we got three out of six, even if everything outside of our control blowed up, blowed up, blew up in our face that day, we could go home that night and say, yes, but I have these three moments where I was 100% the human being I wanted to be. 
And my job now is to help people figure out their own values and create their own customized leadership test. But that's the one that, that drives my company, drives me, and it's the example that I use, is those six values and those six questions tied to them. And it's not just like a nice thing to do. Behavior, like in the behavioral psychology, there is a real push that when a question is put into our brain, our brain will feel uncomfortable and we will feel uncomfortable until we answer it. So what we did by making those questions an expectation is we actually made ourselves feel uncomfortable and somewhat desperate to get the questions answered. So I basically messed with young people's heads uh, and in the process managed to mess mine up as well. But in this particular case, it, it brings a new meaning to the word bless this mess because it was a good mess to create. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, really powerful. And so from your perspective, Drew, I mean, you and I are talking about this and we're so passionate and we get it. And, but there's, there's still a lot of people who are not bought into They're like, Oh, I hear what you're saying, but I, I, I want to keep the doing, the doing, the doing. What would you say to those folks? What would you say to, to welcome this in, welcome them in? to this new way of seeing and experiencing things and really be committed to how they're being on a daily basis? Ultimately, I think it's just, are you willing to settle? Like, it's weird because you can't make people do anything. It's one of the hardest lessons of leadership in life is that you, have, you are not in charge of other people. And so when people are pushing back from it, ultimately you have to decide where am I willing to settle in my life? No matter how old you are, you're too young to settle. But not starting something that you know will make your life better is a form of giving up. And I think that there's the only message that I have is that you owe it to yourself. Oh, that's too cheese ball. I guess it's just like ultimately it's up to you. Like all we can do is put out into the world uh, stories of how it works. Um, messages of how it made our lives better, share with other people who have had the same experiences, and then ask people, do you want better or not? And ultimately, if you want better, you have to work at it. Like every, I guess it's this way, if I had to sum up one thing, everything that you want in your life is on the other side of something shitty. Like it's it just, you talk about transformation, the only transformations that stick are the ones you barely notice. Uh, on a daily basis, right? And, and one of the, the best things that was ever taught to me is when it came to fitness was they broke it down into, instead of sort of being like, oh my God, I don't look like I want to look at the end, is, they, is uh, one of my trainers said to me, it takes four weeks before you notice a difference, six weeks before your closest friends notice a difference, and eight weeks before the world does. But what that actually did is it gave these little benchmarks along the way and yeah. sure enough, that's actually how it works. Four weeks, yeah. you start to feel it. Six weeks, one of your friends will be like, hey. And then eight weeks, you know, people you hardly know but have seen you before start to. It basically comes down to this. Everything you want in the world is on the other side of something shitty. And ultimately, uh, you have to determine if you respect yourself enough to do hard things to get better things. And if you don't, stop bitching. All right, because that's your fault. And I know that when you're like as a speaker and you know, the lollipop moment, that might come off as harsh. Um, and, and I didn't used to talk like that. And I'll admit some of the things that have happened in my life over the last two, three years have added an edge to what I talk about. But you can't just listen and have things change. It doesn't really work like that. And so 
It's just about whether or not you're willing to accept being less than the person that you want to be. I don't, and if you are, then okay. But all that stuff that makes you feel bad is not going away and it's your responsibility. And uh, I guess that comes off as a little bit harsh, but I found that sort of couching it any differently just doesn't work. When you give people an excuse to not do the hard things, they will seize that. And so let's put it out. If you decide not to change things for the better, it's not going to necessarily get better. Every now and then it'll fall into your lap, but hence, like, hence the chaos of life. There will always be an exception to that rule. There will always be somebody whose life just gets naturally better and they didn't try anything and probably didn't deserve it. But hey, um, oh my gosh. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the, you said what's one thing and I gave you six. No, I, I, I think it's so important because it's, it's acknowledging that you could read about stuff as much as you want, right? It's not something you get at an intellectual level. It's something that you have to start embodying and start working with and starting to get into action. And nobody gets to skip the messiness, right? It's like anything when you're practicing something new. Um, and I really love what the, your trainer did there. I think that's so highly effective because it's just helping to manage expectations. Give me something to help me understand so that I'm not expecting after a week that right it's just helping like let's be a little bit realistic around what this process is going to look like and I I talk a lot about that when I'm, I'm, I'm talking about coaching or leadership development or whatever it may be sometimes it's going to be two steps forward one step back three steps forward and two steps back right it's this it's this playing and trying and experimenting and um, allowing yourself to to fall down and get back up again right not being afraid of failure right you learn through those failures but it's allowing yourself the space to be able to be the learner, to be the student and be able to practice. And, and you know, what's interesting, like failure, what is it? Failure is reps for your resilience muscle. Uh, not to get too far into the fitness thing, especially since I put on 35 pounds since COVID started. Um, well, actually the thing is about 15 is since dad died, right? It's yeah, just, and you go right, because I can't drink any anymore. Um, and so like the one vice I have left is food. And, but one thing that my trainer did say that has stuck with me and this thing, she's like 22 years old at the time too. And I'm just like, stop being smarter than me. <laughs> Is I walked in the second time sore, like a type of sore that, you know, you're just like, what am I doing? Um, and anyone who started exercise knows this, right? Like you just, are just like, why? I can't even move. <laughs> and I walked in and I said, well, it'll get easier. And she looks at me and says, it does not get easier. You just get better at it. And wow. Like, and, and you know what, it, not only does that apply to, to fitness, but man, it applies to grief. It applies to like, it does not get easier to say goodbye to people you love, but you do get better at it. And, and I think that keeping that in mind, because when you say it gets easier, it's the same thing as saying, and I, and I want to respect our time. It's the same thing as saying everything happens for a reason. Mm. It basically removes you from the equation and removes the credit that you deserve from the equation. Everything happens for a reason. No, it doesn't. There's no reason for anything. There's reasons for everything. The world is a wildly complex place. But when we try to boil it down, and I like the sentiment, right? Something bad happens. You were patient. You were strong. You persevere. And then something good happens afterwards. And then people say everything happens for a reason. And I, I always cringe a little bit because I like the sentiment. But we also have to realize that when you attribute the bad thing that happened for some reason beyond your control, you ignore your strength, your perseverance, and your power. Yes, everything happened for a reason. You're the reason. And that good thing that happened is because of you. And when we just attribute it to some 
like grander scheme in the universe, we don't give ourselves credit for that patience, that power, and that perseverance that we can then access and remember the next time we need it. So what we're effectively doing is we're ignoring uh, the evidence that we're strong and patient and just saying, well, everything happens for a reason. It's the same thing with saying things get easier. No, they don't. You get better. But both of those statements minimize your role in your success and attribute it to it just being easier or better or being out of your control. And look, I'm not, because I've said that before and people get upset because they think that I'm taking a shot at, at people's belief in a higher power. I am not. The only thing I know about God is I know nothing about God. All right. That's the only thing I know for sure. But ultimately, higher powers, whatever you believe, don't solve your problems for you. They give you the strength, the patience, the perseverance to do it for yourself. Do not deny that. Never, ever, ever forget the battles you fought and won. There is power in your pain and there is wisdom in your wounds. And do not ever sell yourself short on that. And I know people want to be humble, but humility is not denying what makes you extraordinary. It's recognizing what makes you extraordinary doesn't make you better than other people. And I think, especially as I work with young people over and over again, they used humility as an excuse to deny their power, to deny their strength, to deny their extraordinariness. For lack, for lack, there is a better term. I'm not going to say for lack of a better term. Don't do that. Never, ever, never apologize for being awesome. Just recognize that being awesome doesn't make you better than other people. There is no limit to the amount of awesome that can be out there in this world. And I think that we ignore our greatness in the name of humility. And that's not what humility means. Humility no. isn't about denying your awesomeness. It's about recognizing it doesn't make you superior. And I, well, I really want sure. people to know that. For sure. And it reminds me, um, you brought this up in, in the book as well. And, and again, you should see all my notes. Like there's so much because we could talk for two hours. Even when I'm looking at my notes, I'm like, you must have thought you're going to have two hours to go through all those. Um, but it reminds me when you were talking about um, abundance and scarcity, right? And, and when you come from that place of abundance, it's um, recognizing, of course, we all have gifts and superpowers. Doesn't make us better than less than. It's just, let's make sure we're all sharing our gifts. And then the more we do that and shine our light, it gives everybody else permission to do the same and share their gifts um, because we all have these special gifts and talents. And when we're working in our zone of genius and um, using those gifts and talents, you're, there's a beautiful flow that shows up for us too, right? Like it's a, it's a win-win, right? We're sharing our gifts in a way that almost feels um, a little bit less effortless. But I also want to acknowledge what you said there so clearly too. Um, it's that resilience, right? It's working through the, the human condition, right? It's, it's kind of like when you talk, I've, I've talked about this one a lot and it's probably going to feel like it's being belabored for other people who have heard me on other episodes, but it's even when we think about emotions that there's no good or bad emotions to be human is to experience the full range of emotions and to think we're not going to experience the other emotions means, okay, so you don't want to be human anymore because that's what comes. That's what we signed up. That's the price of admission. And it's not even, it's not your emotions that get you. It's the judgments you pass on yourself for having yes. them. And, and I think to share your stuff is important. And, and if I can tell a, a quick story about just to encourage people to share their stories is that, and about this thing about judging emotions, uh, when my, my late girlfriend passed away, she died by suicide, which is a wildly complex form of grief because it's mixed not only with grief, but with anger and, and uh, guilt. Right? And anyone who's gone through that knows that this is incredibly confusing mix of grief and anger and guilt. And uh, how could they? Or why didn't I? Like, how did I not see it? And I did not cry for three months 
I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the trauma of, of, of discovering this had happened. I didn't just get a phone call. I mean, we, we found her. And that changes how you can process it. But I didn't cry for three months until I was on a drive and I listened to a podcast and I heard a woman telling her story. And at the end of it, she said, grief is just love coming face to face with its oldest enemy. And there was something about that phrase, which was exactly what I needed to hear to finally let let emotions come. But I had spent three months going, why am I not crying? I'm a bad person for not crying. Why am I angry? I'm a bad person for being angry. It wasn't my emotions that were slowly destroying me. It was me judging myself for having some and not having others. But then that woman in telling her story said one line that some guy two years after she told it a thousand miles away, heard it. And it was exactly what we needed. Share your story share the things that hurt you, share the wisdom you have, because somewhere out there, it's going to land in the right place. And it's not your emotions that are going to get you. It is how you judge yourself for them. And for all of you who have bad thoughts, who don't live life with love, you know, and you hear all these gurus say it's about gratitude and love, and you get frustrated because you're not that person. It's not your thoughts that define your leadership. It's the actions that emerge. And if you, if you're jealous, and you're angry, and you're bitter, and you're hurt and you don't want to do certain things, but then part of you says, but the woman I want to be, the man I want to be, the person I want to be would do it. And then you do it. That's leadership. But we judge ourselves by not what we did. We judge ourselves by all the reasons we came up with. We didn't want to do it first, but then you did it. It is not a character flaw to think bad things. It is a character flaw to let your bad thoughts turn into bad behaviors. Don't judge yourself for your emotions. Judge yourself on your behaviors. Yes. Yes. It's those interpretations. Right, it's those interpretations, and and I'm I'm so a big believer of um, coming from a self coming from a place of self compassion and grace, and then taking action, right, and then doing what feels right, and uh, being consistent. So I want everyone to remember it's about what we do consistently, how we show up. Um, I knew this is going to be the case. We're going to be wrapping this up. I don't want to wrap it up, um, but I want to give you an opportunity kind of a one. This is going to be so hard. I, I, I can't even believe I'm asking this of you, Drew. One sentence uh, to leave with our audience uh, in terms of final thoughts. <laughs> I'm singing the song Grace 2 in my head now by the Tragically <laughs> Hip because you mentioned Grace. Ah. <laughs> uh, I guess, um, wow, what a, um, I guess I'll, I'll roll back. I don't know the secret to happiness, but I do know that one of the keys of unhappiness is when a gap forms between the person you want to be and how you're actually behaving and you become aware of that gap. Uh, I think that that to me is something to always bear in mind is that it's the gap that makes us uncomfortable. But if I, I, I think that's, that's what it is. And as long as that gap is not addressed, it's never going to close. But as long as we ignore it, um, there will all, we will never be happy with ourselves. And honestly, I guess one of the biggest things is this. When you are empty, you have nothing to give. And so make sure that you take enough time to not be empty because leadership is not martyrdom. And I think it's important to remember that. Yeah. So everyone listening, this is your invitation, 
right? You can take action when you notice that gap. Who do you want to be and what do you need to do to get there? And I get it. It can be vulnerable. It can feel scary. Um, but here's, we're giving you the invitation and the permission <laughs> to go ask for help and, and get to where you want to so that you can then, be that person, so that you can show up as your best person every day. Watch the West Wing and listen to Hamilton. <laughs> and so much of life will become clear. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today, Drew. Thanks for the honor of being invited. Awesome. Everyone have a wonderful day.